Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Storybox, where I, your host, Jay Phantom, has the utmost privilege and honor to unbox the amazing stories of some incredible people from all walks of life and experiences. I'm delighted and grateful that you're here today. Now let's dive into the Storybox and hear more about our guest today. My friends, I am super excited about this episode because I have two Hollywood legends on the Storybox today sharing their incredible journey together. I have Eric and Eliza Roberts. Now, for those of you who don't know uh, Eric Roberts, you would definitely know his face uh, because he has been in countless, and I mean countless movies, over 584 movies and TV shows to be exact. He is one of the only film actors in Hollywood that has immensed such a resume over the years. And uh, he is also the brother of Julia Roberts, the Academy Award-winning actress. Um, Rob Eric is actually an Academy Award nominee for his role in Runaway Train and a three-time Golden Globe nominee for Runaway Train and Star 80 and The King of the Gypsies. He's also been in many films that you would know, such as The Expendables, The Dark Knight, and Inherent Vice, um, Lovelace, and, you know, CSI, Code Black. Um, so many, so many movies I could keep going, rattling them all off, um, but that would take too long, <laughs> literally. Uh, but on this episode, we... I love this one because we dive deep into all the things that, you know, are important, which is family dynamics, relationships, and sex as well. We actually talk about that in this interview, which is quite a, um, a fun part of the conversation. But they're just so personable. They're so humble, very down to earth, and I really love them both, love their story. And this is an episode that is going to touch you in all the fields, uh, is highly emotional, highly funny. Uh, so much great stuff in, in this interview um, that I, I can't wait to share it with you. So with that being said, my friends, I need you to do me a huge favor. If you get something out of this interview, please leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcast. Share it around to your friends and family members. You can also watch the full interview on YouTube, so don't forget to do that as well. Uh, so with that being said, everyone, let's dive in the story box and hear the legends and icons of Hollywood, Eric and Eliza Roberts. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here with you. It's an absolute honor to have you both here and be able to speak to you both. As I said before, I'm a film nerd. I've grown up pretty much watching most of your movies. I could basically go through the entire list and say which ones I've seen you in. But the most notable one, I think, for everyone would probably be the Batman The Dark Knight. Um, now, I usually have one question that I love asking people to sort of start things off, and that is, what does success look like for you? So we'll start with Eric and we'll go with Eliza. Success for me is uh, freedom. And it's, it's, uh, it's freedom to choose. It's, uh, it's, it's freedom to say no, even. It's freedom to say yes. It's freedom. It's, it's freedom. And uh, to, have that, to have that freedom is to have success, at least for me. Mm, love that. How about for you, Eliza? Um, success is 
to be able to feel like a star, whether you are or not. Mm. So it's a matter of kindness and decency and really having that be enough, which by the way is work. It's mm. not, it's not easy to do that. A lot of times when you hear that from people, they're rationalizing and they don't really feel that way. But especially nowadays where everyone can make shows, hope for it to go viral. You know, everybody's out there. And I think that success has become a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a heartbreak. Mm. Where did you both, so I'll start with you first, Eliza, where did you come up with this idea of success? Was it more of a gradual thing over time, over your career, or was there more of a catalyst moment in your life? Uh, that's a really good question. This, it, my idea about success developed through experience, mm. less my experience than the experiences of people I love. Um, watching people's careers get launched, watching them stall, watching frustration, watching them have to relaunch, um, just watching people go through it all ages, watching little kids get that spark where you put them in a show and they're hooked for life and you, you know, you care so much about them. So it, it developed over time. Mm. And how about for you, Eric? Ask the other uh, question again for me. So where did this idea of success in terms of freedom, where did that come from for you? Was it a gradual thing over time that you started realizing Okay, success for me is being able to do the things that I want. It's freedom. Or is there a catalyst moment somewhere? Well, it was, it was an evolution. And uh, su success you know, for me means, mean, means lots of things. The end result to it, some of that is freedom. But it means things, everything from a great table at a restaurant <laughs> to, um, to, to not having to wait anywhere for anything. Because mm -hmm. that's what they do for us when they recognize us is they put us in the front of the line. It's totally unfair. It's totally unkind, if you ask me. And I don't do it unless I'm unless unless it's my show and I'm and and I'm the guy it's all about. And then I allow that to happen. Otherwise I don't do that. Mm -hmm. But 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 that's where success is a toy is so much fun to have. Mm -hmm. Is that thing. Do you find yourself getting recognized everywhere you go? Does that ever get annoying? Uh, annoying. The only time it's ever in the way for me is uh, is when I'm alone with her <laughs> after a long, hard day. Oh. And but but we're out in public, and uh, I'll be talking to her, and I'll just get to the good part, and we'll have somebody come to the table. Now, but it happens so often it's not like oh no it's like oh here we go again you know it's not, it's not that big a deal but that's as big a deal as it becomes that's as negative as it gets for me mm. it doesn't ever get negative even when it's a real in my way pain in the butt it does not become an issue because i love being famous more than i don't and there's more positives to being famous than not mm. so uh so I just enjoy every minute of every day, pretty much. And I also enjoy the fact that it makes people happy to see me. Mm. How painful can that be? <laughs> and so, and so I, I allow their happiness to become my happiness. And I must say, all BS aside, my wife taught me how to do that. <laughs> because I would say many a day, God, I'm tired. And my wife would explain to me, it's the only time in your life that that, uh, that, uh, that, that they think they're going to see me and it means something. So act like it. Go. And so I learned to do that because mm -hmm. of her. I love that. We'll get to this dynamic duo in a moment and how it all began. But I want to ask you, Eric, did you always want to be famous? Ever since I had cognizance, uh, so, about, so about four, four and a half years old, I remember I'm practicing my Academy Award speech. It's been it's been the most the most the most uh, present thing in my life. Always was the fact I was going to be a famous actor someday, mm -hmm. and even from the time I was four years old. And uh, I did I did all the things you know that that a, that a four year old does. He gets his Academy Award speech ready. Uh, he 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 says his favorite Steve McQueen line over and over again every day. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of thing. And uh, I was getting ready to uh, to be a movie star. 
It was only when I was about eight or 10 years old and I had done a half a dozen plays and I'd done a TV series and I realized acting is a big deal to to make people believe what you're doing and it's mm-hmm. not honest. It's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And to make them believe it so much that you can make them cry and or laugh is even a bigger deal. Oh my God, the control that gives you is miraculous. Mm-hmm. And to make all the other little girls go, oh, I want to know his name. Is even more exciting. <laughs> so for all those reasons is why I always chased it. Mm. What I am curious now when you mentioned your favorite Steve McQueen line. What what is that? Do you still remember it? Um uh yes. It's the last line in Sand Pebbles. Uh uh and I'm blank for some reason. It'll it'll come me while we're talking. It'll come back. I know. I, out of I know you've you've read so many scripts. So the one line that you want to remember, it suddenly just disappears. <laughs> I understand the feeling. Don't worry. Um, will, will you, well, well, will you put me on the spot? But anybody who knows the the last line to Sand Pebbles after he gets shot in the stomach is lying there dying. Call in. Let us know. <laughs> Please do. So, Eric. You've, you've been practicing your, your Oscar speech since you were four years old. Now, did you go to acting school to become an actor or what happened like with, with um, getting your start? I did my first play at four years old. It was called Poise for Tots and it was a <laughs> Christmas special and I played a mute clown. So I had no dialogue. I was just a clown in a toy box who who, uh, who came to life when everybody left the room. And uh, and in my first play called Toys for Tots, they had the toy box downstage left. And at the end of act one, the uh, the door opens. We hear it open and we jump in the toy box and close the top. That's the end of act one. Okay. Well, for some reason, because of the of the acoustics or the with the sight lines or something, they had to had to move the box from downstage left to upstage right. Now, I'm only four years old. The other kids are eight or 10 years old. I'm the baby, I'm four. So it's the end of act one, here we go. And I'm a creature of habit, I'm four years old. Okay, so I run downstage left to the toy box, but it's not there. So I run off the stage and it's black and it goes to black. Bam, I hit the ground, I get a black eye. They move me backstage, they put ice on my eye. I went out for act two. But uh, but that was my first. <laughs> so you had a very, I guess you could say, traumatic experience your first time acting. But then you just went out there and continued doing it and keep showing up. And I think you have continued to show up in every single movie and role that you've been a part of, which I think is honestly incredible. Do you ever find yourself getting tired? And if you do, what what do you do to overcome that? Well. I actually do find myself getting tired. And I turn to her and I say, God, I'm tired. And my wife said, but look how much joy you're bringing so many people. (laughs) And she'll smile. And I realize for all she's just trying to keep me going, she's also right. Mm. And uh, it's I I have that kind of job. I just show up and it makes people happy. So I'm happy to show up. Mm. Now, I want to ask you now, Eliza, what did you want to be when you grew up? Did you always want to be a movie manager or what producer? What, what, what was um, what was your start? You know, I think uh, I don't think anybody really actually wants to be a manager. Um, I think that 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 evolves from some other desire in our industry, and it also is a certain type of personality. If you're kind of a caregiver um, and a little controlling, that's where you go. Um, no, I, I wanted, I grew up in a showbiz family. I always wanted to act, but I didn't want to admit it because I don't like to want something until I already have it. Mm. So, um, I pretended I wanted to be a doctor, work in a hospital. Excuse me. I have to interject now. Now, now like Eliza does not ever, ever, ever talk about her family or brag about what she's done or what she is, what she's accomplished, (laughs) but it's tons and just her background. Her father was a screenwriter, an Academy Award winner. He worked three days at a condo out of Africa, the way we were, the firm, all the Redford hits, all the strikes and hits. He wrote them. Her mom produced, wrote, and also directed all the Lucy series, except the black and white ones, all the color ones. I think there are three of them. 
She's all those. She 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 wrote for Dick Van Dyke, All in the Family, all these great hit comedy shows she wrote for. <laughs> so 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 this is her show business royalty family. They're huge, and uh, her uh, her son and her daughter by her like her like first marriage are also these incredibly gifted artists. Uh, her her son's a singing songwriter musician, my favorite singer songwriter, not because he's her son, because he's brilliant. Oh my God, Keaton Simons. And her daughter is a chef, her own drone, own drone, own drone, own drone your kitchen and uh, and bake shop. And this, and these and these two people are just incredible, wonderful, down earth, groovy, artistic, gifted people like her. But you'll never hear that from her. So that's why I piped in. Continue. Too humble. Very <laughs> humble. I like that. Yeah. Thank you, Eric. That was very nice. So in terms of what I wanted to be when I grew up, I wouldn't admit that that so i i would tell myself and everybody else write in my diary and stuff that i wanted to be a doctor mm. and um and that was it and then you know but i always was an actress and i i fell into casting for a while and management and i've just sort of done it all but but yeah i i couldn't um i just thought let's see if this works out first before we actually you know voice it and say it out loud mm. so then you two met, so I, I would like to. There's, there's, there's a whole life here before me. Yeah. And my 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 wife is on your TV series and and like movies and all <laughs> kinds of stuff. And then she uh, she uh, she married an an, uh, an assistant to director who became a big time your producer. Had these two kids, blah blah blah. And then I came along much later, and uh, and uh, I was I was kind of an afterthought in her life, but uh, uh, we. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and but okay. I just want everybody to know it's not just the Eric Roberts show; it's the Eric and Eliza show, mm. and uh, we have so much fun. Mm. So, tell me a bit about this dynamic that you've created over the years. So, you mentioned Eric there for a moment that you knew of Eliza for such a long time, and she, you, she, you were kind of like an afterthought for her for you. Um, so, can you can you share what? For you, Eliza, what ended up drawing you to Eric? Well, I mean, we were in the same world and we had so many friends in common. But and as a matter of fact, the year that he was nominated for the Oscar, my father, it was the year that my father won an Oscar. I didn't always watch the Oscars, but I watched that year because my father. Mm. And then there was Eric. So that was kind of a weird coincidence. Um, just we met. I mean, we met on a plane. Um, I've always been a talent junkie. I think you are a little bit too, probably. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I thought of him as being a, really a genius. And of course, if I really broke it down, I realized I hadn't actually seen very many of his films because I like romantic comedies and he was in these intense dramas that scared me. So I don't know how I was aware of him. It was by osmosis. I hadn't actually seen any of his films all the way through. You know that, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, uh, and the first one I actually saw all the way through was final analysis. Mm. So it wasn't, wasn't like one of the, and then after that star 80 and, um, I've still never seen runaway train or Pope Greenwich village all the way through. Um, so, so, um, there are other two violent for her. Yeah. 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 Too disturbing. And, you know, anyway, um, so, um, but he was, um, it was, it was much less, that then he he had a cat he was really nice to his cat he <laughs> was an accessible sweet guy and that's kind of what did it mm. so yeah. eric how did you end up wooing eliza like what was the initial conversation like i'm curious well our uh, our our like first conversation was very you know fortuitous you know for me because of a, of a name i dropped but uh uh, what, 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 what actually got her attention was I had a small little cat carrier about this big, very small, little bitty kitten in it. And, um, chicks love kittens. You can't <laughs> and so I had this kitten with me and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, we both had scripts, we're both reading scripts. So we both closed our scripts at the same time. We kind of have to talk. So who wrote that? Who wrote that? Blah, 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 blah. Who's your favorite screenwriter? She says, one guy, David Rayfield. He wrote Three Days of the Condor, Out of Africa, The Way We Were, the blah, 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 blah. I trust all I know. He's my father. 
So I say to her, wow, that's far out. Give me your phone number. And she goes, I'm in a relationship. I said, I didn't ask to sleep with you. I asked for your phone number. She laughed and she gave it to me. So I used it. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So I used it. (laughs) So you were in a a previous uh, marriage and relationship um, with with someone else, Eliza. So things, Mm -hmm. I, I guess, they didn't work out between you two. And then Mm -hmm. when was that moment where you decided, okay, Eric is actually, I'm interested in him, that there's more to it than meets the eye? Right. Well, you know, my philosophy about relationships is that they have a lifetime. And that lifetime includes all kinds of stages, just like a regular human lifetime. So I never really think of them as not working out, working out. My criteria isn't something that can be very unrealistic. And if you compare your relationship to a fantasy relationship, like I see your parents are still together and that's great, but that's not how all of them work. But if you compare it to that, it can be very sad instead of just kind of um, reveling in whatever it is. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, that relationship, we have two kids. We're really close friends now. Um, we learn so much with each other and, you know, including you learn what you don't want to do next time and what you do want to do next time. Mm. Um, with Eric, you know, I, I have a little bit of like hippie in me. I don't, I don't necessarily believe in marriage. Marriage was never important to me. Um, I got married the first time because I was pregnant. And my mom told me I should get married and Jimmy wanted to get married. And I was like, okay, I, you know, to me as a, it was an institution that has nothing to do with the relationship, mm. but it has a kind of magic when you're actually standing there getting married, there is a thing, you know, it is something and it's, mm. and there's a lot of nice things about it. Um, but Eric, for Eric, it was funny because the women he was with before were dying to get married and he kept getting engaged. <laughs> and we were in upstate New York. Keaton was there with his friend and, um, and, and we were right near Woodstock and, and, and Eric was like, let's get married. And I was like, okay. And then we got married. <laughs> so, um, the thing that made me decide that was just him asking. I mean, there was no reason to say no. And it was kind of adorable because I really think women in a heterosexual relationship, I think usually women drive the relationship. It's only in our fantasies and in lifetime movies and romantic mm-hmm. comedies that the man drives the relationship. That's really rare. Usually the man is not sure. He doesn't want to commit. He doesn't call. He doesn't take the initiative. You know, that's a, that's a dream. And then we're frustrated, but Eric's more like a girl. I mean, he's very passionate and he really did kind of take charge of the relationship. And I thought that was fun. I'd never had that before. Like that was, that was a blast. Mm. So I just went, sure, this is great. I'm very lucky. So Eric, Eric, for you, I'm curious about this leadership aspect in a relationship. So what does that actually entail? Like what, what are some things that you need to do in order to, you know, lead a, a relationship properly? I have no idea. I've never been labeled a leader. <laughs> till now. I, I just did. Until now. Yeah. So I have no idea. I mean, no, what, what, what she's talking about, the only way I can translate that is uh, the only way to to get what you want is to ask first. Mm. That's, that's all I know. Mm, that's a good one. You know, if you, if you want it, ask for it. Mm. I want to marry you. I want to, I want to hang out with you. Let's get married. Okay. Let's, um, Let's, uh, let's, let's go here on a vacation. Let's go there on a vacation. How about you? Where do you want to go? You know, uh, just to see what you want first. And, mm-hmm. uh, and she's also the most approachable, kindest, um, participating kind of a human I've ever known. <laughs> mm-hmm. So she's taught me how to be social, just even with myself, she taught me how to be social. Wow. And so uh, I have, I learned to enjoy my life through my wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this this trust aspect in your relationship and even on film set as well, I'm always curious about how do you go about building trust in because you both work together and you're both in you're both married as well. So able to share your secret. Well, I'm gonna answer it because it's probably a very involved answer. I don't have an involved answer. All I have for you is this. What like makes us work for me mm. is the honesty we have because 
it's hard sometimes to be totally honest. And we are totally honest with each other in every category we have to deal with. We are honest. Okay, what is the honesty here? That is the groundwork. And then all the frosty and the good taste is a sex life. If you have the honesty mm-hmm. and a constant sex life, you're going to stay married. And uh, that's, 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 oh, yeah, dude. He's You're way too young to hear that. Three years old, yeah. Please, I've had conversations about with sexologists and and all that sort of stuff. I find it very fascinating about this dynamic about you know sex in marriage and about connecting with sex. Like you, you need it in order to grow and feel close with one another. I mean, mm-hmm. I think in in my in my culture, the way I was brought up as well. It was almost like, okay, when you get married, then you can have sex. Okay, that's, but it changes the dynamic of a relationship between mm-hmm. the two people. It's so real. Like you're, you're connecting on another level. It's amazing. Yeah. Her mother told her, if you don't have sex, the man you marry before you get married, you're making a big mistake. And yeah. she told that as a little kid. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting you say that because... Um, Eric's right. It's so cute that he remembers that story. My mom, you know, who was of course an artist, she was also married a lot of times. Um, and she was a bit of a, of a, you know, bohemian, a little bit of a beatnik and she was very, very liberated. I mean, she never, she had a huge career. She never thought anything about that. She was a woman. She just had a career, you know, but it's, but it's because of, of, uh, of Lila Garrett that the women are in writer's rooms now. She, she, she was first. Mm-hmm. She's kind she, of a pioneer. She was a whole generation ahead of number two. Yeah. And this fits with that because she had much more what we think of as masculine thinking mm-hmm. about relationships too. And she did, I thought being like a good daughter and a good girl, um, she started talking to me about sex. I mean, it was, I wasn't a child, but I was, you know, whatever. It's a, the age you start talking about it. Mm-hmm. And I said, thinking it's what you're supposed to say to your mom. Well, I'm going to wait until I'm married. And she was like, no daughter of mine is going to be stupid enough to wait until they're married. <laughs> and she said, and she said the same thing to my sister. She said, you know, you're tr- supposed to, if you're, especially as a woman, you're supposed to underplay the importance of sex. Mm-hmm. Like other things are valuable. Sex, we still think of as being like a bad thing that we can live without. I mean, you know, anything fun, we, we think we can live without. It's all, you know. And my mom said, no, it's really, it's just as important as anything. You need, you need to have that communication and that compatibility. You can't live in a marriage where that area of your life is terrible. So you better know that with each other. She also said though, (laughs) we went to dinner for my little niece's birthday. So my daughter was a young teen. My niece was a child. Um, My nephew was a child. My son was a little older and we were all there at the restaurant and um, she was their grandmother, you know, and my daughter, um, my daughter's gay. So she was there with her girlfriend. They were young. And then my little niece, you know, and my mom said, well, Ariel, that's my niece's name. What pearls of grandmotherly wisdom can I give you for your birthday? And she said, I know marriage kills sex. And <laughs> I thought it was like, Thank you, Grandma, for, you know, you could have baked some cookies or done what grandmothers do. <laughs> Ariel didn't know what she's talking about, but the rest of us did. Um, and, you know, it doesn't have to be that way either, by the way. No. But I think you have to acknowledge that, you know, I always liken it to um, reading a book. You can have a favorite book, and the first time you read it, you can't put it down. You're obsessed. You can't think of anything else. You're in heaven with this book. You know, you, everything falls to the wayside, right? You don't eat. You don't sleep. You don't do your work. Um, and then if somebody said, I'm so glad you love that book so much, that's going to be, we're going to get rid of all the other books on your shelf. That's going to be your one book mm. forever. You'd be like, wait. Um, <laughs> time, you know, the next time you read it, if it's been a while, you're like, oh, it's nice. Maybe you find some things you didn't see before, mm-hmm. but I mean, it's exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So it's also when you're first falling in love, you can't eat, you can't sleep, you can't, you don't do your work, you, you know, you play hooky from everything. Um, and so I think we, you have to really manage that mm-hmm. and, um, in, in a marriage, because you certainly can get a huge emotional impact 
if you don't honor that commitment? Mm. Why is it that you have a lessening emotional impact if you do honor that commitment? So it's it's a project. You know, it's a challenge. It's the same as if you're doing a play on Broadway. Eric did burn this on Broadway. You know, you're doing the same part every night. You know, let's say you're doing a Stanley Kubrick movie and you're doing 85 takes of one scene. How are you still finding anything? How are you still connecting? So I hear what you're saying about connection. Mm. Um, There's a million elements to, I think us working together is one of the most exciting things that we have. And the honesty that Eric's referring to is less a matter of filling each other in on every single thing we did all day than it is. You're not helping someone if you allow them to continue a pattern that's destroying them. Mm. So, you know, if he's impatient on set for a minute, he's almost never impatient on set, but if he's impatient over some issue that can't be fixed, you know, that we're waiting around too long or whatever, but there's a real problem. There's a flood or the electricity went out. You know, I will remind him, other people will kowtow to him and be like, oh, sorry, Eric, we, you know, yeah, poor you. And I'll say to him, what are you doing? This is not a fixable, you know, be part of the team. And he appreciates that. So it's, it works for both our personalities to just know each other's moves and just kind of make it an efficient machine, you know, and also there's a shorthand. We don't have to, we don't have to search to see what each other's day is like because we share, we usually share the day. Mm. So we know exactly what we're going through. Mm. And then there's the little things you can do to spice it up, you know, order the right food that it will be a great treat for him when we wrap, you know, just little things that, that really make sure the wardrobe department has the most comfy socks because he's going to be wearing some terribly uncomfortable boots. I mean, all those things. I really believe in couples working together. Mm. You? I love, I love that. I do now. I do now. It's just being creative and, and taking yourself being selfless. Sorry, everyone, to disturb you from listening to our amazing guest story so far, but I wanted to butt in here and let you guys know that I have started a YouTube channel for the Storybox podcast where you can watch pretty much all of the interviews that I've done so far with some amazing guests over on YouTube. So you can just search up the Storybox podcast or you can click the link below uh, in, in the show notes to actually go to the channel and watch all the amazing content that I have put out there for you guys uh, with some amazing guests on there. You got Grant Cardone, you got doctors on there, you got, you know, so much amazing content, actors, stunt doubles, everything that you guys would want or need, it is there for you. Small bite-sized chunks, golden nuggets, you name it, that is going to be very beneficial for you. So if you do want to subscribe, it's th- that option is there for you. Really appreciate your time and your support. I apologize for the interruption, but let's get back into the story box and continue hearing our guest story today to you. Oh, sorry, being being selfish to another person. Right. And you're being creative as well with one another. And I think that that shows, I know for, I'm not married, but I know for all the mistakes that I made in my previous relationships uh, with, with girls, you know, I, one thing was there's that communication factor mm-hmm. which is a big part of it and i love how eric mentioned honesty and even if it hurts just say it don't gotta do it. It. You, you've got to do it like i know yeah. i know firsthand from my family and, and what happened with my parents for a period of time that yeah. there wasn't that great communication there was a separation for about four or five years because yeah. of this disconnect in many yeah. different ways. And men have needs, women have needs as well. And I think mm-hmm. it's just being, trying to find it and knowing really the person, like I'm always curious about how do you not get sick of the other person for such a long time? That's yeah. always been a curious well, thing. Let me, let me point something out. It's only human nature to get tired of something at certain times. Hmm. Like I turn to her, for everything from uh, intellectual religious advice to to wear my underwear, I turn to her for everything. Mm-hmm. So so she gets sick of me pretty pretty steadily, and <laughs> and you know and sometimes 
I get, find it yourself. And she's like, no. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, she's right. I should find it myself. I'm just not used to that. <laughs> but, and, and, and it makes myself laugh at myself. But uh, yeah, no, no. It, um, r- r- the imperfection in, uh, in, in, in relationships, especially mine, is, uh, is part of its charm for me. And uh, I uh, like, you know, you know, you know, you know, my wife will be on a project and will not go to bed up till that project is done. Now, she has OCD, a bad case of it, but she's also that kind of human being who will not stop until it's done. Now, I am, too, but I don't stay up all night, you know, you know, you know, for it. I'll get up early the next morning. But uh, it's just it's just our personality differences. And when I see she needs help, I am there for her. And uh, because she's always there for me. And so uh, it, it, it's just it's just it's just a great and dependable thing to have. And we have it with each other. Yeah. And I think a lot of young people, when they get into a relationship, the first couple of months is all giddy, all exciting. And then the real work actually starts. And it's well, like, hours too. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. never stops. That's the thing. And if you're not 100% committed to it, then don't do it because you're going to end up hurting not only yourself, but other people in the process. And mm-hmm. that's, that's what I've realized in, I don't know what it's like in, in America, but here in Australia, the young people, they have commitment problems. It's, I don't want to commit long-term to a job, but I want to commit long-term to a person because there is oftentimes is fear associated to it. And it's like, how can I take that step forward to be in a relationship with someone for a very long period of time and continue working at making that other person happy? And how can I be happy? But here's a thing which brings us back to the very beginning, which is what you said, be kind. And kindness is a service. So you're taking yourself out of the equation and you're just serving another person. You're going to feel content, satisfied and fulfilled. You know. It's that it's an amazing balance, balancing act that I think takes a millennia to learn, <laughs> but that's the best part about it. Um, that's and very like, I agree. Yeah. I, I was, um, that's how I, I learned that from all the mistakes and talking to people like yourself and asking these kinds of questions. Well, how does a relationship work? You know, and, you know, it, it's it's great for me to learn all this stuff because now I can go hopefully one day for the next person that comes along, I can then show them how hard I, I work on not just the, my business side of things but the relationship factor with them. And, you know, no matter how busy you get, here's one thing that uh, a, a sexologist told me. She's like, make time. She said, even if you have to schedule a thing in, in your calendar and it's there, yeah make time for it. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's great advice. Like don't, don't wait for the quote opportunity. No. Just make it happen. I think that's yeah. an important, important point to raise as well. Yeah. And, and also it's a, it's a fun to make dates. I will see you at 2 PM. Okay. See you then. And you go separate ways, but it's two. Here we are. You know, it's just fun. It just makes it fun. Absolutely. So I want to, shift the conversation a little bit back to filming and, and acting and, and that sort of thing. So Eric, when you get a script, what's the first thing that goes through your mind? Do you read the whole script or do you, what, what do you do? What's your process? Okay. The, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the process is very mechanical and it's just this, I get a script, here's a script. They want to play blah, blah, blah. Okay. Thank you. I read it through bang for the script. I'd read it for the story. Bang. Then as soon as I'm done reading it, I go back to page one and I get my my orange marker and my yellow marker and I do all my dialogue in yellow and all my action orange and I break it down so I can look at it and know what I'm looking at. So I, I, I don't I don't have to read everything. I can glance and know where I'm at. Then then I have it, you know, color coordinated. Then I start to learn it. And and by and by learning it, it is just sheer repetition. Up until that's all that's on my conscious mind is a story and the character and his words and his clothes and his place. Mm. And uh, it's I'm, you know, over and over, over up until I get up from my desk and I'm that guy. I'm that guy. Yes, I have a gun in my back pocket. Look out. And uh, I'm that guy. And I'm walking around my house. And uh, 
and and my and my wife sees me coming in the hallway and character. She ducks in the hallway. She 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 ducks out of the hallway. Here he comes. He's doing something. God knows what it is. And uh, it's just I'm I'm a I'm a little boy playing cowboys and Indians, quite literally. Mm. And that's what I do. It all starts at the desk. Hours are spent there, two to four hours initially. Then I get up and I start to in corporate him in, in, uh, in my everyday stuff, how I brush my teeth, how I drink, how I eat, how I dress, how I walk, how I drive my car, stuff. And I become that guy. Mm. And, uh, but as I get older, I realize be- becoming other people is only wearing other clothes uh, psychologically. It is not becoming them. It is only dressing them psychologically. It's not really being that, 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 that opinion that, uh, that they would have. Mm. And uh, so it's much less wearing in my old age than it was in my youth. Because in my youth, I took them much more seriously and much more completely. And I own these characters. They belong to me. It was like a love affair. Mm. Now it's like a date. (laughs) I like that distinction. So speaking more about that, this idea of method acting, I've heard stories where people can be in that same mindset, that character for like six months of the shoot. And someone like Daniel Day-Lewis, there's a famous story about him and he was best friends with someone before shooting and then he was playing a character that absolutely hated the other person's best friend's character pretty much and they never spoke for six months. And after they break character, Daniel Day-Lewis goes up to him and he's like, love you, man, let's go. And (laughs) I I was, so this idea of, of method acting, like how do you not get into believing that you are this person? Well, let me, let me, let me tell you uh, an example that's just organic so I can, I can explain it so you can understand it's not quite all premeditated. It's not quite, you don't, you don't like force it on yourself. As an artist, you allow it to overtake you. Mm. And that's, I did a film called It's My Party. Where I, where I, where I played a gay man in a relationship with another gay man and they, and they, they, they were married and one, one of them died of age and complications. And, uh, uh, the, the, the prep of that movie and that movie, uh, took a total of a, almost five months. And, uh, my wife pointed out in the in the six months after that movie, after after I said yes to that movie, in the six months it was over. I was done with it. Blah blah blah. All I had left was 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 present several months after it came out, but that was over. And I went up to my wife and I grabbed her. I gave her this hot kiss. Now I was just saying hi to my wife, you know, but I gave her a hot kiss. And wife said, "Do you realize? Because you know we uh, we kiss a lot. Do you realize that you haven't kissed me like that in five months?" And I said, "No." She says, well, you haven't. She goes, and I've missed it. She goes, you know, we're kissers. I said, yeah, I know. Uh, Five months. She goes, ever since you started this party, you haven't kissed me. And I realized she was right. Mm -hmm. Now, that wasn't anything I aimed to do or aimed not to do or aimed to experience. It just happened. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a very small, unimportant example. But it's an organic example that's perfect to explain what happens. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that's, that's, that's how it goes about. And, uh, you, you don't, you don't, you don't change your life. You just change your involvement in your life. If that makes sense. Mm, it does make sense because I've spoken with people about this thing and I've worked with actors that, you know, they have their process as well. Cause I've been on set and I've noticed them like doing these warm ups as well, but they'll be in character and they'll ask me to address them in their character's name. So psychologically they, they, it clicks. Otherwise they go back to their own personality and it's not the character. So Mm -hmm. I've always, I remember being on set once and he, he was known to be a very over dramatic sort of character. Everyone warned me. They're like, don't go up to him. Uh, if you go up to him, you'll get blast away. Um, he'll get very angry at you. So don't even bother. Only the director can go up to him. He used to sit by himself at lunchtime. No one would go within an inch. So everyone would, the only person that was allowed apart from the director was when they were putting on his, his suit for the monster. 
that was the only time you're out. But even when we're doing that, I was at a distance and I was watching my uncle actually putting on the suit and he was like yelling and going, like doing all these grunts in the, in the, uh, the suit. He didn't want to be disturbed at all. But then when the shooting for the day finished, he still maintained that monster mindset. Like he didn't shut off for, for the week that we were there. So I've always been curious about, you know, distinguishing between and not getting actually inbred because there's some roles out there that I know are pretty, pretty damn like hard. So I want to I ask you, Eliza, like when you see Eric in this mindset, what's going through your brain? Um, you know, I've seen all different degrees of it with Eric. Like Eric used to get very anxious before the day before the first day of shooting, no matter what he was shooting. Um, just, you know, hypersensitive, just anxious, just wanting it to go well, you know, and not trusting that it always goes well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've seen him, I've seen him more influenced mood wise and just going somewhere when he's involved in a book. Mm-hmm. Like if he's reading a book that's very disturbing and disturbing character study or disturbing story, um, he really can go off the deep end and just kind of not be able to shake it much more than his characters. By the time I met him, he was pretty good at shaking his characters. Mm. Um, so there's not really much of that. In fact, I think part of Eric's process is to kind of, um, after a take, just completely break and go somewhere else. Mm. And then it comes right back. I mean, he'll goof around and be joking in the middle of a really intense scene. Um, but that works for him. I, I'm not sure why. One thing about us as actors is, you know, there's a little bit of psychosis involved. <laughs> you know, and there's like when you know how children when they pretend, like let's say that you say you're a kid and you say to your grandma or your mom or something, let's pretend and I'm going to be the parent and you're going to be the child or I'm going to be the teacher and you're going to be the student. And you start to play and you just use your imagination and you know, you're using input from what you've observed from the parent or the teacher or something. And suddenly it's so real that you stop and you, you, you start doing it kind of badly. Mm. You get it stiffen up. It gets kind of fakey because for children, reality is so new, mm. you know, and there's no, they have no frame of reference. So like, for instance, our granddaughter who's 16 months old, she talks to the dogs. I mean, to her, the dogs are what we would think of as people. Why not? She doesn't know. She was in the womb. And she and she talks to the dog's language. The dog will buy your job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, totally. Because She's talking to the dog. Yeah, because that's reality. She doesn't. She, she has no experience to tell her differently. Yes. So, as children, our imaginations are are amazing and. The, there is no line between reality and fantasy. So you can get into an emotion and have it be completely real, but not based on anything that's really happening. Mm. Now, as actors, we lose that. And then we spend the rest of our career trying, to, reca- trying to recapture it. Mm. And but what happens for some actors, great actors, is they never lose it. It is not great for their lives, by the way. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. Right. But it's great for their art. They, you know, my mom said to me once, I keep quoting my mom, but she said to me once about Eric, she's like, Oh, I saw him in something. He's so wonderful. You just can't take your eyes off the screen. Even if it's just a piece of shit, it doesn't matter. You know, it's just, it, it, you know, and she said, you know, darling, you married an actor. You can't expect him to grow up to be a human being. <laughs> <laughs> and that was so true. It helped so much. That I remind my myself of that. Yeah. Wow. Regularly. Right. When he can't find his way anywhere, he does not use a GPS, whatever, <laughs> you know, I'm like, okay, I married an actor. Can't expect him to grow up to be a human being. And, um, you know, we just did a, a project together, very, very intense drama, um, a, a short film that was really kind of brilliant in New York. And it was really, we go through a huge emotional thing. Our son is so shattered by our divorce that he, um, pulls a gun on us and tries to get us to reconcile at gunpoint. You know, it, it's, it was a, an allegory, really intense. And, you know, we both 
just kind of went to this emotional place that wasn't on the page. I just heard from the director today. He's like, I didn't even know that stuff was in the script and I wrote the script. <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. Psyche of the writer attaching to the psyche of the, of the actors attaching to the psyche of the audience. But anyway, um, so we don't know. We don't know why we were able to tap into this. We have no idea. Is it some kind of channeling? Is it that psychotic break that makes it so that suddenly these words take after take were our reality? Mm. Um, I, I, I don't know, but I don't want to touch it. You don't want to mess with it. Mm. You know, but I do see with the kids that we coach, sometimes they're amazing and then they scare themselves mm. and then suddenly they're stiff and they seem really green and they're terrible. Mm. And you try to work them back into that and they don't know what you're talking about. They don't know they were ever there. Mm. Um, you can say, go to the scary place, go to the messy place, even if it's a comedy, but they won't necessarily do that for survival. They've already done a curtain over. Yeah, it's psychic survival. That's right. They're, they're, mm. they're protecting their psyche. We've given up on our psyches, so we're fine. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you said all that. That's very fascinating. And as a film filmmaker and film lover, I really appreciate all this knowledge because it really does help. I mean, I love diving into the mindset of actors. And because, right. you know, we see pretty much if you didn't have an actor on screen, you wouldn't have a movie. So the actor is the character that I've, I've always been mesmerized by watching a movie and being hooked mm -hmm. in a particular dramatic scene at how the actor can command your attention yeah, by his presence or her presence. Yeah. It's always, and it's just like, it's playing in, in so many ways. I, I just love it. And you're creating, yeah. you're creating it, not just a, a character, you're creating a story around it mm -hmm. as well. So I want, I want to ask you guys, I know I'm very mindful of your time. So a few more questions, if you don't mind. So this one is more or less for you, Eric. You're, you've worked with a lot of well-known directors. Do you have a particular one that you related to the most? Well, of course I do. And that, that, <laughs> that, that would have been Bob Fosse. Mm. And, uh, when I, when I first read the script of Star 80, I didn't want to do it because it was such a one-note, dislikable character. And who wants to, to do that? But it was one of my idols. Um, Bob Fosse and Hal Ashby were my two living idols at the time. So it was Bob Fosse. I had to go, I had to go after it. So I auditioned five times for that. But uh, uh, that, that part was never fun. Mm -hmm. It was never, it was never a, pleasure to 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 find that magic and what the magic was 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 a knowing i had his point of view as i portrayed him i understood him because i saw what he saw i felt what he felt i knew what he knew because of his lack of or his education mm. it was him and so uh when i got there with him it was an accomplishment because he was nothing like me i'm nothing like him so when I got there, it was not rewarding for me. Right. And that made me uh, uh, incredibly depressed and incredibly um, uh, dark in that if, 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 if this is understanding somebody who I consider to be the opposite of me, then I don't want that kind of knowledge. Mm. And, uh, Bob Fosse, one day, I was having trouble with the scene. He took me aside, and he, he, he and I had gotten very close. You know, we, we, uh, we talked in shorthand, and we knew a lot of it about each other's history. And he said to me, look at me. I said, I'm looking at you. He said, look very closely. You're playing me if I weren't successful. Do you understand? And I'm back to the set, watching how he walked and, like, literally started playing him. Uh, because uh, that was a handle that I knew very well. So when I got lost in the portrayal, I would turn to my understanding of what he was. And uh, that's, what, that's what guided me through playing that part. Wow. 
Did that answer the question you asked? Yeah, I want to get, let me ask a question. Remember what you were going to say. Do you think Fossey did that deliberately of found a way to manipulate you into that place of depression? Because Paul Snyder was depressed. Do you think, what do you think? I know that's true because he, uh, he, he, he uh, said to me very early on, why are you so happy? Uh, mm. Many times. Mm. Why, why are you so happy? Because I'd be all silly. But why are you so happy? And mm. so he, he, would, he would kill that. <laughs> and uh, then we go to work. Yeah, yes. but, you know, but but he also had a great sense of humor, but it was black humor. He had, mm-hmm. he had very dark humor. What do you look for in a director when you take a project? Well, uh, it all it all depends on where I'm at. Then uh, it's it's always evolving. But basically, what I'm looking for is, especially if I like a project, what I want is I know how to paint this this uh, this portrait well, you have to tell me where it's going to hang so i paint it in a way that it that it looks proper where you hang it if you're going to hang it outside i'm going to use different paint i'm going to use different colors if you're going to hang it in a hallway i'm going to paint it differently if you hang in a bathroom i'm going to paint it differently even though it's the same issue on the canvas it's the same the same like picture i'm going to use different colors and different style all depending on where it's at so you tell me where we're putting it and I will give you what you want to put there. Mm. That's kind of an oversimplification of my job, how I look at it. And when I have a director who's really prepared, I'm his ace in the hole. Yeah. But, if I have, but if I have a director who's not prepared, I'm his problem. <laughs> so speaking about when you got a director that's got no idea, he's nervous, he's, he's got absolutely no clue how to direct you. What do you do? Are you are you kind to him? Are you nice to him? Do you help him out a little bit, or do you just, yeah? Well, I'm old school. I look ah, love it at him as the boss. In fact, I call all my directors boss all day long from uh, from day one until wrap. They are boss. So it, so it, everybody knows. I like I like think so. I say boss this, boss that. Yeah, boss got a boss. You're right. All right, boss. Here we go. Always call them boss because they are the boss because. It's a fascist system. You have a dictator and everybody else. And that's how it works best because it's his, his view, his image, his, his baby. Mm. And it is baby. It is his infant. It does not yet breathe. It is still having trouble walking, getting around. So it's being taught all those things as you make the movie. So you have to take care of his baby. Never make fun of his baby. Never, never trip his baby. Never, 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 never put his baby down unattended. You take care of that child being the film. Mm-hmm. And uh, up until it's up and walking and dressing itself, and it's a film you can just show on its own, and then it holds its own. But it takes all that stuff to uh, to make it a person, to make it its own entity. And so uh, 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 I'm old school. It is his baby and I'm just part of it. Mm, I love that. I'm a, I'm a perfectionist when it comes to making movies. I've made, I've got the, the uh, posters on my wall up here. You can't see them, but <laughs> I remember my first movie that I made that actually won an award. It was the worst experience for everyone, including myself because nothing went right. And wow. I'm thinking, ah, oh. but then <laughs> In the in post production, when we put it all together, yeah. it was the best thing I'd ever seen. At that time, I was twelve years old, and oh. it ended up winning an award. And I couldn't believe it. You know, like I could not, couldn't believe that something so dodgy <laughs> actually <laughs> won. But it was it was the story. It was the realness behind it. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was working with one actress in particular on, on the film Unseen. So it's to do with a blind person. Here's a funny story. So we, I cast three actors. So there's the, the, main, the two main leads and then there's a supporting actor as well. And then on the day, or the not, sorry, the night before the shoot, I get a text message from the, one of the lead actresses saying, I'm not feeling well. Ah. I've gone, oh, no. Okay, what do I do? So 12 o'clock runs around, I'm up all night and I'm stressing out. She tells me I'm not feeling any better. I said, okay, text me at 3 a.m. in the morning to let me know how you're going. So she texts me at 3 a.m. in the morning 
I'm still not feeling good. And I've got, we, we start filming at 7am. That's, that's the shoot time. So I've got not long to figure out what the heck I'm going to do. So I've run at 4am. I've run into my mum's room and said, mum, I've got no lead actress. I need you to be the supporting actress for me. And I'll go to the supporting actress and ask her if she wants to be the lead. So I've gone to her and she's gone, Jay, I, I don't know any of the lines. I don't know what I'm doing. I said, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out on the day. And I said, just take your time. And I, I said, I just need you to show up. She's like, okay, I'm, I'm there for you. My mum, she's like, okay, what do you want me to do? I said, just, I need you to say these, these two lines. That's all you need to do. And she was playing a receptionist. And funny story, my mum is actually a receptionist. <laughs> so it was like playing natural. So the day we start filming and nothing's going right. Nothing. And everything was clunky. Uh, it was hot. And, but we just had this amazing time. And I remember her asking me, she's like, Jay, so how do you envision this character to be? And I told her, I said, look, she's a blind person. She's giving, she's confident. She's giving this psychologist who thinks he knows everything, she's giving him a new perspective on life. So I need you to be confident in your character. Can you do that for me? He's like, of course I can. And that film ended up going all over the world. Uh, short film. I couldn't believe it. You know, you have to send it, you have to send it to us. I, I'll send it to you. There's so many mistakes in it, but um, it's okay. I, it, I made it in 20. Was it 2017? I think it was. But it taught me a lot. Like every single film that I have done, it's taught me something new, how to work with actors. Because that was actually the first time I'd worked with professional actors before, believe it or not. Um, I went off on a bit, a bit of a tangent there with my... No. <laughs> Getting to know each other. It's all cool. Yeah. Um, I ended up working last year. This is another funny story. Ended up working last year trying to build my film business. I was also in real estate as well. Uh, now in seven days a week, working full-time in real estate, trying to build a film business, it doesn't really work. Something's going to give. And unfortunately, both gave at the same time. <laughs> um, so that was a huge lesson for me in that. But we ended up making two films. Uh, so me and my business partner, one of them was just a short film that we did pretty much on the whim, which turned out to be such an incredible project. Uh, that I'm extremely proud of, which is called Without You. It's like this uh, in a dialogue moment between two people. A, a wife has lost her husband and the husband has come back and she's envisioning him to be there. And oh, wow. He's really not. Oh, it's a, it's a, such a brilliant wow. little film. Yes, of course. Okay, well, write me a movie that uh, that you want to co-star with me and or direct and, uh, and, uh, and make it nasty and fun and dangerous and... And uh, and the let's sit in Australia, okay? I've got sixteen movie projects in in the can. Like I'm I'm I've written all sixteen of them. So I've got to I've got to send them to you. I've got to look back at them and, and send you one of them that I'm proud of. For sure, cool. cool. We'll definitely do something. So my my last question for you both. Now this is my legacy question that I love asking people at the end. Okay, so you've both been able to reach the age of one hundred. And your friends have put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. We won't ask you how they, they got it all. We'll call it magic. And they've shown it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your lives? <laughs> everything we've ever said publicly or just period? Everything we've ever said, period, and done. Period. Period and done. Okay, what, did, what did we want it to say about our lives? Go ahead, Eric. No, you go first. Oh, really? <laughs> um, that the kindness is real. I'd like you to say that. That I have um, real empathy and compassion for my kids and anyone that I've affected, good or bad. Even if I'm not able to show it sometime because it's so overwhelming. Um, that um, I, that my mistakes and regrets really turned out to open a door that was a good door. So it's not like I have to redo the whole hundred years again. 
Um, and that, that I've managed, that we've managed to do something to improve things, to make people safer, people, animals, everybody safer. Uh, that's what I would want it to say. I love that. How about for you, Eric? Uh, I'm going to keep it very simple and unprofound for, for, for whatever he, uh, he did and didn't do in his life. Whatever that was or wasn't is what that was or wasn't. But he was all actor. That was good. Love it. That's a perfect way to sort of end that conversation. Eric and Eliza, I really appreciate both of your kindness today and giving me a chance to speak to you both. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for coming on Storybox Podcast and sharing your stories. You are so lovable. You are so likable. You're so approachable. Stay that way and all my love and respect, young man. I don't like this part because it means that sadly, we have come to an end of yet another incredible story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you'd like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on any podcast platform. It's that easy. If you did get something from our guest today, please share it around to a friend or family member that you think could benefit from hearing this powerful story. And before you go, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It will only take 30 seconds and it'll go towards reaching more people. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one. Your support is greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you next time.